Welcome to a podcast from the Journal of Medical Ethics. My name is David Edmonds. This is the second interview about infanticide. I spoke to Nigel Bigger, Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at Oxford University. Nigel Bigger, let's start by asking you what your position is on infanticide. I don't think infanticide should be permitted. I do think abortion up to a certain point should be permitted, but not infanticide. And the point at which you think abortion should be permitted is when? I'd take 18 weeks after conception. Now, why 18 weeks? Simply because that is the point at which brain activity becomes evident, and therefore one might infer that's the point at which consciousness begins. But that does suggest that you draw this distinction that many moral philosophers draw between the human being, the organism, the biological organism, and the person. That's right. And a lot of my Christian colleagues would not want to do that. They think it's dangerous. My view is that we need to be able to give an account of what it is about human being that merits special care. Why do we merit more careful treatment, say, than slugs? It seems to me that the answer has to be in terms of some kind of qualities attaching to human being normally. Those are qualities distinct, as it were, from being a human being. Those are qualities in terms of our mental capacities. Yes, I'm happy to encapsulate the qualities in in terms of the word rationality, but there's lots of room there for discussion and dispute over what being rational is. Because some moral philosophers talk about the ability to plan for the future, the ability to use language. There's all sorts of capacities that people talk about that certainly wouldn't be possessed by an 18-week-old fetus. Yeah, my sense is on reading people like James Rachels and even Peter Singer that the definition of rationality they have expresses tellingly the kind of qualities that well-heeled middle-class male philosophers have. That's to say, rationality in terms of articulacy, rationality in terms of being able to bring to consciousness your aims and make plans and, to use Rachel's term, to launch projects. And that seems to me to be far too narrow because most human beings, even most adult human beings, are not particularly articulate. Most of the time we're not very self-conscious. I prefer another definition of rationality, that is to say the capacity of human beings to respond to higher spiritual goods in the world. A capacity to respond to higher goods, that doesn't sound like something that a fetus, an 18-week-old fetus, would have. No, that, that's right. I think an infant could be said to respond to higher goods in terms of relationship with a parent. Drawing the line at 18 weeks is, is somewhat arbitrary, but it seems to me that the moment when the physiological development of the fetus has come to the point where brain activity occurs and therefore one might impute consciousness of some kind, that's about the only decisive break in the development of the fetus. And what are the implications for animal rights here? Because if you're basing your view on a capacity argument, then presumably there are some animals that have greater capacities than an 18-week-old fetus. My first response to that is that we should use that argument for raising our treatment of those animals rather than degrading the treatment of human beings. But it's true that certain higher primates might well have more capacity than an 18- or 19-week-old human fetus. But as I said, there's a certain arbitrariness as to where I draw the point. But I, I do think we need to be very careful, if we are humanists, in drawing lines before which the killing of human beings may take place. And so I'm inclined to be conservative, even if somewhat arbitrarily. And we need to be very careful. Why? Because we shouldn't think that the humane treatment of human beings is a kind of natural default position. I mean, I don't have to point to Auschwitz. I could just point to the uh, behaviour of 
healthcare staff in the Mid-Staffordshire NHS Hospital Trust, about which we all heard recently, is to say. So the cultivation of attitudes whereby human beings care for one another, treat each other rightly, is a cultural achievement. And even though there may be rare cases where exceptional treatment is appropriate, we've got to take care of social norms. So part of this argument is that caring for the unborn as well as the just-born is about cultivation of certain important virtues. That's right. I mean, the fact that we are now talking about the possibility of infanticide, which is something that 40 years ago would have been unsayable, is partly the result of a generation or two of our becoming accustomed to abortion and becoming accustomed to abortion virtually on demand, which was not what the pioneers of the 1967 Abortion Act intended. So in other words, our, our attitudes toward killing human beings has become progressively more relaxed in my own lifetime, so that now the killing of infants is conceivable. The point is that attitudes toward the care of human life do change, and they can change for the worse. So let's be extremely careful before we begin to admit another category of human being to the class of those whom we may kill. But you said that the fact that abortion was now acceptable, both legally and, I guess, socially, has made it thinkable that infanticide might be acceptable. So is that a reason to restrict the right to abortion? I didn't say that abortion had become more acceptable. I mean, I think abortion under strict conditions is morally right. But what's become, to my mind, unfortunately acceptable is abortion virtually on demand. I mean, the, the Abortion Act does lay down certain conditions about threats to the life of the mother, the threats to the mental health of the mother, which is permissive because a threat to mental health can mean virtually anything. And, and nowadays, few doctors will challenge a mother who says, my mental health is going to be disturbed. So it's very permissive. So my complaint is against the permissiveness of the conditions, not abortion as such. But insofar as we virtually have abortion on demand, we are accustomed to the killing of human beings, even to the extent that we will not describe it as such. Now, as far as I'm concerned, before the 18th week, there may well be good reasons to distinguish between human beings who may be killed and those who may not. But in fact, we kill human fetuses up to 24 weeks now. And the reasons why we permit the killing of human fetuses in that period seems to me not to, to be very strong. And indeed, if we do permit up to 24 weeks of fetal life, then I, I can't see any good reason why not infants. In that sense, I'm with Singer, according to his reading of, of the logic. My complaint is that the conditions under which abortion is in fact now permitted are too permissive. In this short conversation, you haven't once mentioned the soul, you haven't once mentioned God. None of your arguments rely on any kind of religious underpinning. Well, that's not true. I mean, it's a mistake to think that a religious argument is one that is constantly referring directly to religious texts or religious concepts. Deeply, my, my argument is religious in this sense. I think that along with, with all monotheists, I, I'm a humanist, I'm a Christian humanist, I think that human being has a special value. I've talked about it in terms so far of a capacity to respond to goods that are given in the world, higher goods. I don't mean the good of self-preservation. I mean goods such as friendship and justice and knowledge of the truth and beauty. And so I believe in a world where, curiously, spiritual goods are given. To my mind, it makes better sense to think of such a world as intended by a divine intelligence than by blind, impersonal forces that care not a hoot about justice. But your arguments have to appeal to non-believers as well as believers. We don't live in a very religious society, here in Britain at least. So you can't have any religious premises if you're going to persuade the majority of the population. My argument does, in fact, have religious premises. The way in which I can seek to persuade, let's say, you as a non-believer 
is to say, well, let's suppose we're both humanist. We can both agree that the due care of human being is very important and that human beings are, it appears, more valuable than slugs. We agree on this substantive moral understanding of human being. It's just that I think that in order to make sense of that, eventually one has to talk about God. You disagree with me, but let's have an argument about that. The way I construe my argument, the way I construe my, my ethical position, does depend on certain religious premises. And I, although I warm to you as a, as a secular humanist, I just happen to think that your, your view, in your terms, doesn't make sense. <laughs> Nigel Bigger, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been fun talking. Our thanks to Nigel Bigger for taking part in that interview. If you want to find out more about the Journal of Medical Ethics, go to the JME website. That's jme.bmj.com. Mm-hmm.